Welcome to Travel Unites Us, a podcast featuring stories straight from the heart of travel. I'm Aaron Schlein, and I'll be your co-pilot on this journey. My friend Rich D'Ambrosio and I started Travel Unites Us to share the human stories from real travelers, stories that get to the heart of who they are and what they do. Rich will be your host on this episode. Be sure to check out TravelUnitesUs.com for all the latest from the Travel Unites Us community. This young lady uh, here sharing this time with me, I got to meet her because someone else, when they spoke to me about her at the New York Times travel show three years ago, more than three years ago, they spoke with such a joy in their heart about Jody. You gotta meet Jody, you gotta meet Jody. Here's her website. Here's her, her um, company's Facebook page. I'm like, okay. <laughs> But you know, when, and Jody and I traded emails for a little while because I think she was actually traveling. At the first time I emailed her, one of her assistants emailed me back and said, Rich, Jody's actually in country right now. She'll be back soon. We'll get back to you when she gets back. And when she and I first spoke over the phone, I did. I just fell in love with this woman because her joy for what she does and how she came to this realization that this makes her joyful. It just, it fills my heart with joy. So Jody Cole, thank you so much for joining us today. <laughs> it's my pleasure. And I'll add a footnote to what you just said about our first phone call. I think it was the longest interview ever. It was like meeting a friend that I hadn't seen in a hundred years. So yeah, it was a lot of fun and we laughed a lot. We did laugh a lot. And, and we've kind of crossed each other's paths uh, digitally over the last few years, but yep. um, what I'm hoping to do today um, is allow Jody to tell this story because anybody who might want to partner with her as a travel advisor who wants to book their clients with Jody, tour companies or, or whoever who's looking for someone with a different take on things, and Jody does have a very unique perspective. Um, and travelers who are thinking about this, we had um, the man who hired me, my second job out of college, Jim Alcon, talked last Saturday about African safaris. For people like Jim, who are thinking, I want to go do this, but I'm looking for someone who's going to take me and help me understand this experience in advance, because I may have some trepidation. I may have some questions that are holding me back. We want you to listen closely to Jody because her unique approach to this and, and her skills, you're going to hear things about her skill sets that hopefully will help you understand why you should be um, working with her. So Jody, you are an Alabama girl. And I think when we first spoke three years ago, I, I let you know that my brother-in-law, Mike, who I literally call my brother, Mike, um, he's from Anniston, Alabama. Um, how did you go from an Alabama girl to someone who, led, who has led over 400 people into the wild of Africa to experience this incredible um, land? Oh my goodness. Yes. Uh, born and raised in Alabama, Birmingham, Alabama. And, um, and when I was growing up, um, my mama had a farm just outside of Jefferson County, which is the county that Birmingham is in. And also, my grandparents had a place in southern Georgia that. Um, which actually where the wild, the name of the, the place was Wildfare. And um, I've since, you know, put wild, it was appropriate because it was very in the name Wild Rainbow African Safaris into the name of my company. Anyway, um, I was one of those kids that never, never, never had any trepidation whatsoever about going out into nature, playing outside. It was my safe place. I could do it alone. It never scared me to go out there. I didn't believe in the boogeyman um, or whatever the scary things were. Uh, I was just allowed to go out and do my thing. So I, could, I, my grandparents' place actually had a bell for dinner time. So at six o'clock at night, they would um, ring the bell for us to come in. Did you hear that, Bunny? Oh my God, that was my messaging, and that was perfect. Um, <clears throat> Yeah, I turned my phone off. I don't know how to turn it off the computer. But anyway, um, and call us to come in, and I would come in with dirt in all sorts of places, and uh, and I would explore things on the ground. I probably picked up more things than I should have. 
I would hang out with the cows in the pasture. I'll never forget. Mama had a herd of, I don't know what kind of cows they are. I don't do cows, but she, I would take my, I'd grab all of my crayons and my coloring books and what have you. And I'd go lay in the pasture with the cows. And she had a bull, a big, huge black bull named Costco. And she'd say, where have you been? And I said, oh, I've been out with the cows. And she would have this look of horror on her face because you, that's not safe, especially with the cow in the pasture. Well, it never occurred to me to be concerned and the cows would all be grazing around me and Costco would just give me a look of complete and utter disdain and just go on about his business. But it was completely, everyone, we were all copacetic with each other. Everything was cool. We were in the total in the zone, you know, in the middle of the pasture. Um, and then you fast forward to 1998 when I, January of 1998, when I finally eventually lived the dream of, I, I had been in a horrible place in my life. Um, and, um, you know, my own version of what horrible place in my life is, um, relationship, so several losses to death and so on. And I managed to put together a trip for myself out of um out of San Francisco, which is where I was living at the time and went for six weeks to um, South Africa and then up to Tanzania. And I thought, well, I'm, you know, managing to surmount some hurdles. Why don't I just throw Kilimanjaro in there right now and climb that? And, uh, and I did, and I summited. Thank you very much. And it was one of the hardest flipping things I've ever done in my entire life. Um, and I, I thought I was going to die, but obviously I did not. And I loved it. And I realized that the only boogeyman half the time in my life, in my imagination, are exactly there in my imagination. I don't really have anything to be afraid of except fear itself. And who was that that said that? Um, FDR. Right. I was on Roosevelt. It was Roosevelt. Yes. Um, the, just that mental traffic that I think we all have that deters us from doing what we really want to be doing. Yes. And here we are, 15 years later. Um, so I went to Africa, January 1998. I kept going, 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 meeting all sorts of people. And then I finally was influenced by two amazing, amazing men, one a Zimbabwean man and another South African man. And they both are the ones who, after seeing me on the ground, influenced me to take the guide training course in South Africa. And that was in 2008. And I did subsequent training since then and apprenticing with a really well-known guide, uh, Bruce Lawson from South Africa, to become the guide that I am today. And I started my company in 2004. A lot of yeah. days. It is highly unusual for an American female to be encouraged by an African resident who does this for a living to do what you do today. Um, have you ever heard from either one of them why they felt that this was something you should be doing? Um, well, actually, I've not ever really spoken to, I've, I've, I've spoken occasionally to my friend from Zimbabwe who's now living in South Africa, uh, but Scotch, the guy from, um, from South Africa, he's, he's actually a black South African. And it meant a lot to me because safari business, generally speaking, is a man's world. And there are many women who are guiding now, and especially in East Africa, there's a big trend to move women into guiding there. But in Southern Africa, it's very male dominated. I don't mean that poorly, it's just the way, no, it, it's the way it is. Yeah, yeah. And to have these men come to me and having been raised in the South, you know, we're kind of, you know, still in the generation of women know their place. And, you know, there are male jobs and there are female jobs and so on. And having Scotch come to me one day and say, you know, I really think you need to do this. So I do, to answer your question directly, I do see Scotch. He works at a camp, uh, Tanda Tula, which is in um, the Timbavati Game Reserve right outside of Cougar National Park in South Africa. And Scotch has been there for over 20 years and has been a very good and devoted friend of mine as me to him. And um, he mentors me sometimes when I'm there. He'll just take me aside and say, hey, let's, you know, let's go look at this or whatever. And we have a great time working together. He's been an incredible brother 
to me and somewhat of a father figure, although I am a little bit older than him, but nonetheless, a really, really good friend. Yeah. So that first trip, um, 1998, I don't know how strong your memory feels, but you arrived where? Arrived in South Africa, landed in Johannesburg, and then we took a small charter flight that I think was no more than eight seats and flew down to KwaZulu-Natal. And um, actually, no, it wasn't KwaZulu-Natal. We landed at a camp called Chitwa Chitwa, which is in the Sabi Sands Game Reserve. Mm -hmm. And as you start to get out into the bush, did you start to feel something immediately or was it something over the days that you were there that you realized something was going on inside your heart, inside your soul? Well, a lot of us in, this, in the travel industry, and you all know this and anyone who's also listening will know this, that the trip actually begins the moment you decide you're going. So for me, the moment I decided I was going and then got on the phone and had a meeting with the, the travel consultant that I worked with at the time, my trip had begun. So the, the, uh, the anticipation had become rather tremendous at that point. Then when the small door on that small plane opened on that dirt landing strip in South Africa, there had been a fresh rain and because January is summertime there, so rains often. And I caught my first, first breath of South Africa in the bush. And I kid you not, I recognized that smell. I knew that smell. And the words didn't go across that mental ticker tape, but I felt the words, I've been here before. I know this place. And uh, maybe I haven't been there before, but that that's deep knowing that we often all have and oftentimes push aside because it doesn't make sense in the situation. For me right. in that moment, it uh, it did make sense. And I was often, often running, just <laughs> loving the whole thing. So now how many times did you return before you started to think to yourself, I because at that time, if I remember correctly, you are in sort of like a fundraising business development position. Um, you were something of a corporate wonk like I was in 1998. Um, what was the pull to say, no, I'm gonna go do this now? <laughs> it it all began with a I'd I'd gone from that point, I had gone for a month at a time, I would go to Africa like twice a year. I don't remember exactly, but I think by the, by 2004, when this a very, very dear friend of mine who still does some work with us, Alison Hawthorne, um, she wanted, was turning 50 and wanted me to help her put her trip together as if I was an expert, but I guess I had gone more than most people at that point in time. Just gonna last. And, uh, and I said, yes, but I have, I will do it for you under uh, two conditions and she says, what? And I said, one, that I can come and two, that when we land, that I get to be in charge and you get to be the birthday princess. And she said, deal, run, let's go. So we went to Tanzania and that was July 16th was her 50th birthday, uh, 2004. And that's what we call our anniversary for the company. Allison and I eventually started the company together and then um, she pulled out after a year because she realized she, a number of things, but she just couldn't keep up with my enthusiasm. And she's like, you know, I've got plenty of other things to do. Joe, you just take this on your own. And I'm like, yes, I love you. <laughs> and she knows all this. So if she's watching, Allison, I love you. This is the story. So you, you're doing the tours, but you're not yet a certified guide, right? No, not yet. So now you go from someone who is deferring some of the authority to people who are living in Africa, who do this for a living. You're kind of putting together the other pieces, the lodging, the, the air travel. You're uh, maybe doing a lot of the selling and marketing here in the States. But then there was finally a moment where someone said to you, you need to do what I do. Yeah. You're, you're, you've got more in you than just bringing people to this wonderful place. You need to be me. How did that unfold? 
I just started paying attention and, and the progression went from my, my early first trip of Pat, a guy named, uh, an amazing man named Pat Duell, who's the Zimbabwean, Zimbabwean I was referencing earlier. Yeah, they'd be pointing out all these birds and things. And I'm thinking, bird schmerd. I did not come to Africa to look at the birds. I came to look at the zebra, to look at the wildebeest, to look at the lions and all of these other really cool things. Birds, stop it with the birds. Well, anyway, I, anybody who's been to Africa knows you can't avoid the birds. And I learned a hard but yet wonderful lesson that while in any given area that we're in, there could be anywhere from 12 to 30 different mammal species but you could have around 300 bird species. Wow. So the birds are always going to win. And I began to get become a bird geek. Never really cared about them, obviously. Um, and then I started learning and became intrigued by the little bits and pieces that I was learning about everything. And so I'd gone on a trip, another trip with Pat, who was actually the guide from the very first trip that I ever went on in South Africa. and went on a couple other trips with him. Then I met Scotch. And Scotch, you know, when we'd stop for a sundowner or a breakfast cup of, I mean, a morning cup of coffee on a game drive, he'd take me aside and he'd go, look at that. What is that? And Pat, when I was with him, he'd go, look at that. What is that? And I'd say, oh, that's a wildebeest track. Oh, that's a so-and-so. That's a so-and-so. And then eventually they were like, my God, you are good. You have got to, you know, you really should start learning more and go more in depth and look into this guiding thing. So I did. <laughs> now, how many years did it take you? You are now at, it's, is it field level two? Is that the, the phraseology? It's called uh, South Africa Certifies Guides uh, and Trains Guides. It's, it's an elevated level of guide training from the government's, government is CAFSIDA, which is a very long acronym for something that I can't even remember. But, for, but there's, a, there's a private association called the Field Guides Association of Southern Africa that CAFSIDA recognizes. And so I went through Field uh, Fagaza, for short, program through uh, another amazing company called EcoTraining. And um, you initially have to become a field guide, which is also known as level one. The name has, has since been changed to apprentice guide. Um, but when I became first studied, it's called a field guide. Then there's level two field guide, which now is called, I think it's actually called a field guide. And then there's level three, which is the highest level of guiding, which is called a professional guide. Um, or is it? I'm going to go with professional guide. And I'm working on becoming a, a level three guide right now, which is the highest level of guiding for, for Gaza. Um, and then I became a trails guide right after um, I became a uh, field guide, a level one. And trails guide is a training that you do that it, um, you have to have uh, advanced rifle handling and uh, in-depth knowledge of wildlife behavior, behavior, particular dangerous game. So basically anything that can kill you in the bush, <laughs> you, know, you have to know. Everything that can kill you in the bush. I know. I know. Yeah. So, um we have to learn their behaviors, any, you know, the twitch of the ear, the flip of the tail, their, their body structure, um, how much they weigh, how much they, how fast they can run. And the reason we have to, the, the rifle training is not to shoot them. There's a guiding ethic all across Africa that we are there for the animals. The animals are not there for us. Right. And when we're with guests, our intent is to think of the animals first in their environment rather than our own comfort. But being a guide, we have to couple the two and make sure, well, if a guest isn't comfortable in the back of the vehicle with something, we have to um, make sure that our guests are comfortable with the situation, all the while making sure that that elephant bull isn't lowering his head, curling his trunk and heading in our direction. Yep. Um, so I became a certified um, trails guide. There's two levels of it. And when I, um, finished my first level, Bruce Lawson asked me to come back and apprentice with him. And I did over a several month period for a year, I think it was 2011, um, which was a huge honor for me because I was um, not a youngster anymore. I was um, already 50, I think, 48. <laughs> I don't remember when I started. So here I am a woman, an American and um, later in age, and I was chosen to do this. And so as a result of that, 
um, I became a full trails guide and um, I just I have you on uh, my phone because I'm trying to comment back to some of the wonderful people who've been commenting. Um, Eva Hartman, thank you for making my dreams of Africa come true, Jody Cole. You are such an incredible and knowledgeable guide. And Kathy Garb, I admire your courage to follow your passion from one farm girl to another. Oh, <laughs> thank you. Yes. You are able to take people out of a Jeep and walk them along trails with their animals. Tell me what what is that like for you? That that you know, my friend Jim. Um, I think I think occasionally they did get out of the jeep, but most of the times they're in those jeeps, which is adding a little bit of protection. Um, how is that different for you in terms of both your personal experience and what you're trying to accomplish for your guests? That that it's not just you know sitting in this vehicle with a little bit of metal protection around you, or or, or are they the same? I don't know. Well, there in the vehicle, there is a different level of protection, um, but protection isn't exactly the right word because if an animal wanted to do something, they could easily do it. And there are stories that usually don't make it to the media because it would deter a lot of people from coming. But that is a microscopic percentage of things that happen. Right. 99.999% of all travel to Africa is safe regarding uh, animals, well, humans too. So um, there is a perceived safety, but when we're, or, and when we're walking, um, where we're at the same level of safety, it's just what happens to the individual walking is different. Right. And, and it's, it's that switch from perception to the lack of that perceived safety from the vehicle to the ground. So on the ground, all of our senses are engaged. We are now in their territory. In the vehicle, we feel as if there's a sense of being able to flee in a hurry should we need to. Right. And on foot, the, the number one rule in the bush is do not run. If you run, you are food. So <laughs> exactly do what your guide tells you to do and don't do anything else and keep up with the group. The pace of the group is always at the pace of the slowest person. Oftentimes there are people like, well, I don't want to walk because I'm really slow. And I'm like, perfect, because then we get to see more. If we're marching through the bush, we're not going to see anything. We're not going to smell anything. One of the wonders of walking is that our ears are turned on. We get to hear the birds or the subtle alarm calls of a squirrel way off in the distance, either alarmed by his own shadow squirrels, as we all know, are kind of, you know, seem kind of a bit nutty, but they're, you know, they're also to someone like me hearing a squirrel uh, chirping far off in the distance could mean something or hearing um, the sound of a breaking branch could mean an elephant is nearby. Um, any number of audible cues, but for a guest who doesn't have a trained ear, you suddenly are hearing everything. Sense of smell, I always try to engage guests by finding an, a plant of some kind or something that we get to smell because I don't think everyone thinks about it. You know, we step out, even in a New York City, there are um, olfactory uh, stimulus that brings back a memory or whatever. And so when we're in Africa, pulling wild basil or wild basil, as they say there, and you know, when we remember at home here with sage, you know, that beautiful herb or um, there's another one that I cannot bring to mind right now. But anyway, um, and then the other thing is if there are things to taste, I will make sure that I engage guests by tasting. And here's another thing that I do. Now, this picture that I told you I wanted to show you, yes. this is the kind of involvement that um, I have my guests get in. We are driving in this particular situation. But I want my guests to not be afraid of nature. Nature is actually our friend. It's just making friends with it. It's just, it's becoming, hey, this is going to sound so awful, but becoming one with, we're, we're all part of nature. Yes. Uh, we decided to, somewhere along the line, we've decided to separate ourselves from it. So if you could see this picture here. Yes. I got to get it on the camera. There we there go. There. So that's me head on. And then to, 
whatever. The other guy in the picture is a guy named Tony, with a, who's a guide at a camp in, in Tanzania called um, Acelia, all of their properties. And we're driving along, and you can see that little baby tortoise. And yep. you can see the ridges. Wait, where's my finger? There we are. The ridges. He was having trouble getting over the ridges there and to get off the road. So I said, whoa, 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 whoa. And so um, we got out, and he got scared and went inside a shell. It's a little hinged tortoise. And um, you can't pick up a note to everyone. Do not pick up turtles, tortoises, or terrapins. I can explain that when you come on safari with me, but just don't do it, okay? It's, it's not good for them. Anyway, um, so we picked up, wait, we picked. I said, wait a minute, I want to see if I can get a picture because what you can't see is the vehicle. And I wanted a picture of the vehicle behind this, enor you know, this enormous vehicle behind this tiny little, where is it? This tiny little guy. So Tony and I got on the ground and took a picture. <laughs> so our whole point here is another guest were like, oh, can I get off too? Can I get off too? And um, there's another picture of another time when there was a herd of elephants that walked along. We stopped in the middle of the road. This herd of elephants, we're not walking, but here's just another story. And I'm sure, Rich, you're ready to get on, but I can't, I've got to tell you this quick story. That um, <clears throat> this herd of elephants just slowly moved across the road. And when they're in the road, they own it. So we're stopped there in the vehicle. Right. And <clears throat> they find this mud patch not very far away from the vehicle at all. And they start playing in it and for 45 minutes. We're sitting there snapping thousands of pictures of this elephant herd of varying degrees of elephants, you know, playing in this water hole. Then they all walk away. And now it's a huge water hole. And it started as something rather, something rather small. And now it's enormous. And there was like a pregnant pause and, we're all just sitting there just in the wonderment of this experience that we just had. And I said, I'm going in. Who's going with me? And you put me in the picture. It was absolutely hilarious. I'm sitting right behind him. I've never seen his head do a 180 so fast and his eyes were like this. He's like, what? And I said, yeah, I'm getting off. So I start getting off the vehicle. And then I said, who's with me? And the women, of course, none of the men, well, we're going to take pictures. We'll take the pictures. And all the girls got off the vehicle. And we're in oh. in this mud having a blast. No, we did not get full immersion. We we're rubbing in our faces and our arms. And like all my life, I've always wanted to get in that mud. If Elvis can do it, why can't I? So I did. <laughs> That's the girl who sat in the farm field, the pasture with the cows and the bull. That's the girl. Yeah, that's the girl. Yeah. <laughs> So you too can play in the mud with Jody Cole in Africa. Yes. <laughs> I'll tell you, one of my favorite pictures that you emailed me back in 2017 when we were putting the story together was you sticking your hand in the dung. <laughs> there was a dung pile and you were trying to explain it to, to, to your, to your um, tour group. And I'm like, really? You want me to <laughs> <laughs> this picture of you and dung <laughs> maybe it wasn't your hand maybe you were poking in it or something but i, I probably right may have had some in my hand <laughs> anyone watching this who is a parent or a pet owner will get this yes babies can't talk pets can't talk what is the first thing you look at in the diaper to make sure your kid's okay oh it's white Obviously, it's still doing milk or a pale yellow or something, you know, whatever. If it's, if it's wonky, like, oh, my God, I got to take it to the doctor. Same thing with your dog. So you can tell animals don't talk. So we'll we'll talk about herbivores. So, so lesson number one here, if I haven't already shared any other lessons, do not pick up carnivore poo. We don't want to anywhere because we don't know what they've eaten. Um, and. Right. You know, a lot of the viruses, and we could talk about that at another time, that humans are currently experiencing or have previously experienced have come directly from wildlife. But herbivores who eat nothing but grasses or plant material, we can pick that up because by the time it comes out, it is so digested, it actually ends up being a bit of a powdery thing. So like bunny rabbits, if you were to take one of those tiny little pellets and you pushed it, it would end up as a little powder and you can blow it away. But that stuff is valuable to the old cultures and some of the cultures that still exist. Herbivore dung, so it's used as a fire starter. 
I mean, all this stuff. We could talk an hour just about poop alone. <laughs> I've never interviewed someone who could talk about poop alone for an hour, except maybe a pediatrician. <laughs> right. Or politicians. But I did. Oops, I just go there. Yeah. Kathy, Kathy writes, your focus on the respect and appreciation for the animals and the environment is admirable. Thank you, Kathy. I'm your new fan. Thank you. So I'm going to see if I can put on the screen so that we can talk a little bit about the experience. That looks like you. Can you see you? Yes, I can see me. So now is this picture, is this, this is not out in the wild because you could not get that close to an elephant in the wild. No, um, that is actually in Zimbabwe in Victoria Falls. I have two things to say about this, but I'll say the, tell the story and then I'll say the other very important thing. Sure. This, um, this is an elephant sanctuary that uh, years ago, back in the 80s, uh, South Africa and Zimbabwe had a practice of culling elephant herds in order to manage the numbers of elephants within the fenced boundary. And so, sometimes when I'm talking fencing, we're talking hundreds of thousands of hectares of right. land, okay? But in order to manage that and stay friendly with the villages nearby, they had to control the numbers. Well, in the late 80s, which I'm not a fan of, just to be clear, in the yep. 80s, that was put to a screeching halt, especially in South Africa, thanks to out, uh, outcries from Northern Hemisphere countries. Anyway, some of these elephants <clears throat> were um, infants, and this was back before they would only kill the adults. Um, sometimes they would kill the whole, uh, call the whole herd, but then it, they had gotten to the point where we were only killing adults, not realizing that the babies of the connection of elephants, you'd think after these hundreds of years of research, they would have known that. But anyway, um, so these elephants, they've got like 10 or 12 elephants at this sanctuary that had started out as infants, some new elephants uh, from culling experiences. Some of the new elephants have come in, um, elephants have come in from, uh, rescued from wells or they were injured and the herd left them or for various reasons. And so they've been introduced into these herds. So in order to raise money <clears throat> for their care, they bring in tourists, like you see in this picture, and that is actually me and Eva Hartman. Eva is my partner. So what she just said there was very sweet. Um, thank you, Eva. Um, we went with a group last year for her birthday safari to visit the sanctuary and we can walk with them. So we only touch them when we stand there to take their, our picture with them. Right. Now, the, the other punchline that I wanted to provide as of this year, 2020, Wild Rainbow African Safaris has decided to eliminate all wildlife encounter experiences uh, hands-on where animals are held in captivity. Now, these ele elephants have hundreds of hectares to roam on their own, but they have to have humans with them all the time to make sure poachers don't get them. But we realize that we're not living within our values as a company by going and actually visiting these animals because by visiting them, it condones or could perpetuate putting animals in wildlife, I mean, in um, uh, situations like this when they really shouldn't be. Um, so just thanks. You didn't know you were offering that opportunity for me to say that, but. Um. Well, it, it's, you know, <laughs> these are the complex debates and intelligent discussions that need to be had because we should look at these elephants the same way we look at each other in terms of how do I impact you? Um, you have this environment and I want to get to know it and be in some kind of communion with it, but I want to do it with as little damage as possible. I don't want to harm you. And I, I can honor that. I, I don't fr frankly have an opinion because I don't know the experience that well, but I'm grateful that you've taken such an intelligent approach to it. And I, I, and that's all I would ask anybody is that you, you educate yourself about how tourism impacts environments and that we try to both encourage um, entities to do the right thing on behalf of especially an animal that really doesn't have a say like the rest of us do, but also to get involved if something stirs inside you to say, no, I need to take a stand on this. So I commend you for, for that. Um, 
Thank you. And I, and I think everybody who knows you uh, realizes you come from a very genuine place. You don't come from a place of um, exploiting uh, an environment. You come from a place of you educate yourself, you learn about it, and then you make a decision that's right for your heart. Um, you do take people in a way that... Um, <laughs> Sorry, I don't know how to do myself. The next picture is from Botswana. And people are sit, seated at a table. Oh, yes. <laughs> now, now what is this like that, that you're dining outdoors? Is are we like just outside a lodge somewhere where there's a there's a you know a nice hotel with a kitchen? What put us in this situation? It was a wonderful surprise. It is in Botswana and the camp that we were staying at, I cannot remember right now, it was in the middle of the Delta. And we had boated in the morning, we boated across uh, the, this huge area, gotten out and met a vehicle on the other side. And we went on a morning game drive. Often lodges, and they don't do it with every group. Um, I, I happen to have a terrific relationship. Um, it's a part of a group of properties owned by Desert and Delta. And uh, so unbeknownst to me even, I knew it was going to happen somewhere on this trip, but I didn't know this today was the day. And they organized a bush breakfast for us. Wow. So they drove us around for two hours. We're looking at elephants. I think it's a morning that we saw like 20 giraffes walking across this plane. It was absolutely stunning. And we start driving around in circles and the guys kept radioing each other. We had two vehicles. Maybe it was just one vehicle. And I'm like, what is going on? Why are we? And I'm thinking, well, maybe we're looking for a lion or something because we kept driving in this little circle. And then all of a sudden we came into this clearing that had this, this, tree the grove of trees here and they uh the staff had brought everything from the lodge across the water on the boats to this bush breakfast and so they cooked there we go yes um they had uh they had a little grill out there to fry our eggs and our bacon and our tomatoes it's very english breakfast over there they had a bar set up. Should anyone want to begin imbibing at about 10 o'clock in the morning? And there are people who do. I'm like, why not? You know, we're on vacation. I'm not driving. Have a drink. And uh, it was really, really fun uh, that morning. It, uh, it happened to be, I think, that morning uh, on a tree that you can't see in that picture above us, there was a giant eagle owl, which is a, it's also called a Varose eagle owl, which is the largest owl in Africa above us, which was really fun. There are the ladies who sang were singing to us and they had nice cool cloths for us ready to wipe our hands before our meal. It's just ethereal. It's, it's just otherworldly. Yeah. Um, I mean, yeah. I do a lot of hiking. I've camped overnight by myself. I just can't imagine. I mean, and you know, I, I guess if you, if you camp in the Catskills, you have maybe a black bear might stumble on a, your campsite and you know, <laughs> take for food or try to sniff you. <laughs> But what is it like to to be seated at a table not knowing what's maybe crawling around smelling the, the bacon, is it? <laughs> well, actually, when there's when we're out there, what what's amazing about animals is we don't give them credit for uh -huh. what they already know and their own sense of intuition. So we're in a setting like that, and they typically just steer clear. Um, and we also have the staff is very aware. They're not necessarily trained. Some, some companies do train their staff in basic bush knowledge. Um, but then we have our guide who is with us. We have me. Um, and uh, so they keep an eye. You know, I always have one eye on the bush anyway to make sure. But the animals, they, they know when people are around, unless they're in their direct path, um, they're not going to bother. They don't want to have trouble any more than we do. So they'll steer clear. Now, when we have a bush dinner and we have nothing but lantern light around, that can be interesting because the hyenas are not afraid of anything. And carnivores or uh, nocturnal hunters, mm -hmm. you know, they have an advantage at night. They can see better. Uh, and, you know, hyenas tend to be the more cheeky. They'll try to sneak in and grab something. It's during the day what we need to be concerned about are monkeys. Gotcha. Yep. So now I'm guessing Volcanoes National Park. Is this Rwanda? Yes. Okay. So um, I've had three or four friends who've recently gone to see the gorillas in Rwanda. Um, 
to me, this looks like a completely different setting. The the bush is more dense. Um, how is this similar, different, and why would someone maybe want to be on the savanna doing one thing and then try to add on something like this? I mean, obviously, the distance you're traveling, the amount of effort, and and perhaps you know financial resources you're putting to go to Africa. Is this a natural that you've got to tag on to see the gorillas? Because the is the experience that different and that sort of um, you know uplifting, or I'm not even sure what the word is. Hmm. I could use overly use terms like unbelievable, mind blowing. It is an experience to have. Uganda and Rwanda. Uganda, uh, Rwanda is a very small country, geographically speaking. But there are some national parks. So you could go see, go to uh, Akagira National Park and see elephants and some lions and rhino in there even and go do that kind of wildlife and then drive three and a half hours, four hours in the other direction and end up in Volcanoes National Park and go see uh, gorillas. Uh, Uganda is a much bigger country and there are several, Queen Elizabeth National Park and some uh, areas in the northeast of the country um, that you can go and see other wildlife. Seeing gorilla and also Congo, the Congo, um, the DRC, Democratic Republic of Congo, is a place where you can go see um, gorillas as well, all the same mountain range. And seeing gor gorillas, it's a physical experience, but I think the adrenaline overrides any physical discomfort you might have. There are porters that you can hire to accompany you, depending on what country we're in. It's anywhere from $10 to $20 to hire that person. That is that person's income for the day. They are strong as oxes. It is, and they're willing to be there to help you and have you help you have an experience, amazing experience. Being in the presence of our closest and single most close uh, relative. There is no word that I know yet. This guy, silverback of this particular group, just sauntered literally into the middle of the group. It is very strict. Uh, we are trained, or not trained, but told at the beginning, before you even start walking, how close we can get to the gorillas. If the gorillas approach us, we need to move out of the way as we're able to, because sometimes the bush doesn't allow us to. But this guy just walked right on through. Uh, amazing. But we're seeing these guys, they're 98 point something percent. I, this is a, something I should know. But they're, our DNA difference is infinitesimal. Seeing their mannerisms, the way they interact with each other, their, their, their willingness to engage with each other, their children are just like our children. They're precocious. Uh, they're funny. They're curious. You know, they're, they get their feelings hurt. You can see, I mean, it's just amazing being near them. And, and also having the amazing history of uh, Diane Fossey and the work, uh, actually the life, her personal life altering experience of having done it. I mean, she, she put her life on the line, which is ultimately yeah. what did her in in the end, um, but it made her a hero. And as a result of all of the work that she did and various other people in history, we wouldn't be able to see them. Um, and, and because directly because of tourism, their numbers have gone from just under a thousand total uh, mountain gorilla population. Beringi, Beringi is their scientific name. Um, they uh, are as over a thousand. I think there's like a thousand twenty living gorillas now between the three countries, and it's all due to tourism. So if you can afford to go, go with me or anyone else, but I want to make sure that if you do go, you go with a reputable company. Right. But, the, but what's more important though, is the park system is what uh, has the gut trained the guides to do the guiding. So you leave your guide at the gate. You are now with the park guides and you do exactly what they do and everyone's going to leave happy. And hopefully there'll be some more babies born in the next couple of years. And we'll have, you know, a thousand one hundred gorillas. I'm looking at this picture and the way that this gorilla is staring at, I'm guessing this is your picture. It was your camera. Yeah. That, that the connection, the, is it, you know, the hominid? I don't even know what the, the genus um, hierarchy is, but I almost feel like they know we're connected. 
That's yes. The way I, I feel looking at this picture. It just, it is otherworldly. Um, it is otherworldly and you can see their deep thinking as well. And you can also sometimes see the distress in their faces. I think, you know, I do worry, um, I probably anthropomorphize more often than I should, but I, I do feel empathetic towards them. And I, you know, this constant inundation of tourism, but right now I have to say there, there ain't no tourism nowhere right now. And they, and I've said in a post recently that, you know, imagine the collective sigh of, among all the wildlife all over the world right now due to this pause uh, in tourism. Thank goodness, you know. Right. You know, that's a great idea, Jody, for a future um, interview with someone. I wonder if there's somebody at Volcanoes who's Who's just going by to check on them to see what's you know what's happening in the wild, um, if they need to or not. But it'd be curious to see if anybody um, expert at one of the parks is sensing something different. I wonder if there's a way for us to uh, to assess how our tourism is affecting them, and maybe we need to come up with some different policies coming out of this this whole you know separate you know shelter at home. You know, they're sheltering at home. And, and yeah. if there's something good we're learning for them, maybe we all have to take a step back a little bit and, and manage this differently. I agree. There are still rangers, national parks all over the continent that are going out to make sure um, that everything is going okay, especially with the gorillas, with their genetics being so close to ours that um, they need to make sure that they're not sick. Um, they do give them medical care on a regular basis. Um, so, but in other parts of the area, I had a call um, with an amazing man named Peter Knights, who is the CEO of Wild Aid. Um, and we briefly had a conversation about what's gonna happen with poaching now, now that there aren't tourist vehicles driving around. And there aren't any statistics yet. Hopefully there won't be. Um, and it's funny because I see Kathy Garvey asks, have you ever encountered poachers? Do you carry a weapon? But since we're on the topic of poachers, I'll say that uh, we have not uh, encountered poachers per se. In Kruger National Park, there's an area where I have been, where I did a lot of my training and I take guests often for walking safaris, where we'll see fishing poachers. And we've also seen um uh, we've seen paraphernalia left behind from poachers, um, but I have not personally encountered poachers. And the general rule there is that if you're on foot or you're in a vehicle and you see someone on a property or in a national park that's not supposed to be there, you don't know what kind of firearms they have. So you leave as quickly as possible and, and radio the park system right away. Right. Um, after the, the uh, interview is over, definitely send me any links you have to um, places where anybody can donate to continue to protect these incredible, incredible cohabitants. Oh, my goodness. Um, looking at this picture of these two women in a canoe, an elephant who can't be more than 40 yards away, um, and just how powerful. Uh, an experience to see something that large and in its own environment and yet you know not interested in, in hurting these two women you know not interested in that was an amazing amazing trip um canoeing on the zambezi river on the zimbabwean side of the zambezi river um it's a three-night trip every, fully supported so we do the paddling uh for three days and at night, uh, it's a mobile tented camp and we, um, you know, we have the showers, they're cooked for us. Uh, it is an unbelievable experience uh, to do this. And I had a great group of people that went with us on this one. And it's pretty neat being canoeing down the river. The most dangerous thing in that situation are hippos. But if, if you're strong and willing, we just paddle like there's no tomorrow past those hippos or just give them their space and managed to go around, but we encounter things like buffalo and elephants on the land there, see lots of birds and oh. fishermen will wave at the fishermen. You know, it's a lot of fun. That's an amazing adventure, that one. It looks it. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Um, 
We're going to be wrapping up in about 20 minutes. I'm just scrolling through to see if there's anything. If you can see the screen, if there's anything you want to stop in and explain, um, these guys right here. So any uh, any, moms and dads, any moms and dads who've been watching um, um, the Lion King, right? One of the is it one of the characters, a warthog? Pumba. <laughs> yeah. Warthogs, I swear, I think they're the comedians in this bush. They are, that and baboons. Baboons can be real jerks, and they can also be absolutely hilarious. I'm sorry, baboons. That I just said that publicly to six million people. But if you know baboons, they could just, oh, my God, they're just crazy creatures. And then there's warthogs that are hilarious. In a very interesting animals, um, they can be indicators of the health the health of an ecosystem too, because they eat. They're mixed uh, grazers. They'll eat a little bit. They eat roots and and forbs and what have you. But they also graze and they'll eat off of branches. And sometimes they will eat um, a carcass. That's the word I'm looking for. If they, there's a carcass in their brow, sometimes you'll see a warthog eating off of them. That's a way for them to get some protein and some iron and what have you. How they know this is beyond me. But anyway, how the warthogs know this, but they do. They're really amazing creatures. I love them. They, yeah. look, they look like comedians, those faces. Oh my gosh. Oh my God, they're so funny. Um, <laughs> but, but I don't, I want to make sure that if there's anyone who's watching that, you know, we've talked about all sorts of adventures that Wild Rainbow goes on. Many, if not most, of all of our trips are pretty posh. Meaning, you're, you're, you know, we make sure that um, actually even at the, when we were canoeing, we had white sheets on our beds every night. Um, we make sure you have good food, um, fresh water, uh, clean sheets. And some of the places we go, I'll walk into them, especially after a refurbishment. And my jaw, after 22 years of doing this, I'm like, we're, what? We're, wow. Whoa. You need to look out the window to remember that uh, we're actually in Africa. I see you putting up all sorts of cats there. Yeah, the cats, they're just so, I, again, I don't i don't associate a lion the same way I do with a gorilla, the same way I do with a warthog. <laughs> There's just something different. Like Jim said, you can't put your finger on it. It's, it's otherworldly to try to explain what beauty there is in this animal. Just kind of, I don't know where, what caught its attention? It's looking over its shoulder, but there's just something so elegant. It's crazy. If I remember that picture, I think we are in Botswana. I'm not sure. I can't see it up close, so I can't see what it says about it. If it says anything, it doesn't. I'm gonna scroll to something else and see. Um, this um, one doesn't. But lions are always keeping an eye on. Uh, those are some babies um, that were playing around our camp in the morning, and they usually in the morning. Uh, especially an unfenced camp, we can get up and go to breakfast or go to have our coffee and tea before going out on game drive. But this morning, the lions were unfenced camp all around the camp. There were cubs everywhere and about three or four lionesses. And so the vehicles literally had to drive to our room. I had to climb over the railing of the porch to get directly into the back of the vehicle. It's still dark out. And they picked up all the guests from the group and we were in two separate vehicles and we're driving and we parked the car in the middle of this huge lawn of this property in the camp. And we sat in the lawn in the vehicles watching these little goofballs as if we weren't even there. They were having so much fun. It was great that morning. Before we started this call, do you use the term ethereal? Um, being out there, and I think even when we're hiking in a, in a park sometimes, our senses, even, even in Central Park, I think there are sections of Central Park that are less populated by people. And there's that feeling of, whoa, I'm on the ground and I could touch, lean over and touch the grass when I want or put my hand on the bark of the tree. Yeah. So you expand that out and you're in Africa. And, um, it, it's a, it's an amazing reminder, oh my Lord, of being human, that we're, we're participants on this planet as well. Yeah. Yeah. Now, look, I, couldn't see, I couldn't read the whole thing. What did it say? 
and that look after you've eaten a, a poacher. Oh my God, yeah. <laughs> and then of course there's the people. Oh, that is great. Now I've started working on some programs with kids. This was, I partnered with a very good friend of mine who is South African living in Sydney now. He gets, he works with schools in South Africa, both public and private schools. And he'll go to the headmaster or the principal or whatever their term is there and say, all right, your 12 year olds, all of the groups of, you know, whatever class level that is, what, seventh grade, I guess, seventh, eighth grade. Oh, sixth or seventh. Yep. Yeah. Um, and who are, who is the male and who is the female student that you believe, not the one that's always won the popularity contest, but the one that you see is the actual true leader of that class, not talking scholastically, one who has good ethics, is, gets on mostly with most of the kids, shows potential in regarding leadership. My friend's name is Clive, and he sponsors the trip. So the principal will collect, speak to the students. Students like, yeah, I want to go do this, speaks to the parents. Clive sponsors the whole thing, and he brings in myself and two other guides from South Africa. And we go to, the, to a camping situation, fully supported again. And we have anywhere from 8 to 12 to 16 kids, both boys, both boys and girls. The boys go one section for five nights Girls go to the other section and we walk every day. We go on game drives, only come together at night to have, you know, Coca-Cola and some chips and to talk about our day. Um, and so this is one of them where we are literally in the middle of the Limpopo River, which used to be a thriving river. And if any, if any um, not Jules Verne, um, oh my God, who wrote uh, The Jungle Book? Rudyard Kipling, Rudyard Kipling. Um, the great green greasy Limpopo River, which he mentions in one of his stories. Um, during nowadays, it dries up during the winter time, and so we're in the middle of the Limpopo River in that picture. And one of those sets of toes is mine, and the girls are goofing off. So it's it's mixed school. So you can imagine private schools have certain demographics of students, whereas the public schools have other demographics. You get these girls. In this situation, we had eight girls. By the end, they had never seen each other. By the end of the first night, I kid you not, they were all like this, arms around each other as if they had all come out of the same womb. It was unbelievable. We had so much fun, really engaging, talking to them about tracks and everything. We got down into the down and dirty, talked about poop, of course, because, you know. Of course. Because who doesn't talk about it? And um, it was fun. So this is one night when we got to goof off in the middle of the Limpopo River. Uh, and, and I'll tell you, as, as much as the animals, I would imagine, are the focus, the human connections like this, um, because you're all experiencing it at the same time. And there's just something, again, it's different. You, you go to the Louvre and someone can look, someone who knows art can look at the Mona Lisa and get engaged with it. And another person, it's just not their thing, um, can see the Mona Lisa, be grateful, take the selfie, and that was their experience. Yeah. I can't imagine going into the bush and, and people not having a host of common experiences just because nature is like that. It, it just, it reaches us in a way that I think, I think it gets below all the surface of either lack of knowledge or whatever. There's just something about being in a place like this. Yeah. Yeah. I think we're going to have to go, Rich. I think you're going to have to come with me. Oh, I, I'm, you know what? I've got two boys to put through college. That's my big financial thing. I got to get through the next uh, four years, five years, but I am putting together my bucket list finally, and I will be going. I promise you. And I'm going with you. I'm not nobody else. So that's okay. Good. I'm writing this down in ink. So to wrap it up, um, for anybody who is not Eva, who is not Kathy, who have traveled with you and gotten to know you in the way that you do your particular trips. Um, how would you describe the person you love taking the most? What what are they like when they first approach you? What they're looking for, what they're capable of experiencing? Is there do you have a a type 
of client and you know partners in the industry that you love working with the most that seem to get the most out of working with you? You know, that was like six questions. It all. was. And I always ask okay. six questions, which is my I'm, worst problem. I'm going to do my best here. The, the type of guest is mixed. Um, our, our marketing focus, just to put it out there, is um, the majority of our guests are LGBT. Uh, mm -hmm. We take everybody, uh, family members, friends. I've had completely non-LGBT groups, and I've had screaming LGBT groups because, you know, that's what we do, apparently. Anyway, um, I'm just kidding. So, uh, uh, and I do um, typically very comfortable safaris. And I I have, I'd say, two types. There are the ones that want the more full-on immersion type experience. So doing the walking, the touching, really wanting to dive in and learn about nature. There are the other guests who want to do some of that, but also really want to experience Africa as something they've long wanted. Now, all, all of my guests have always wanted to go to Africa, just mm -hmm. child, from childhood. This, this other group that I'm describing are people who want to have a luxury, comfortable experience and also go on safari. Um, and then they end up going to places like Cape Town and I'll go with them, I'll do great historic tours. Uh, tours of the winelands, wine tasting, um, and uh, but both groups, most of my guests, I would say, are intensely interested in learning more about Africa, be it from an adventure perspective or from a luxury perspective. And you can have the same experience mm -hmm. no matter where you sleep um, and what you're doing during the day. Um, and so what I am, to the best of my knowledge, one of the only LGBT woman-owned safari company. That's all I do is safaris out there. Um, was that the answer to your question? I think I answered it is. for three. No, because I, I think, you know, when we live, one of the things that I just fell in love with you the first time I spoke to you is you basically say, hi, I'm Jody. This is who I am. And, and I'm not going to put on any facades and I'm not going to, try to figure out what are you looking for from me? I'm going to be me. And if you're attracted to me, all the better. And, and we'll form a relationship, whether it's because you'll write about me, you'll come and book a tour with me, follow me online, whatever. It doesn't matter. And, and I think that's what I, the first connection I made with you is just, you just put yourself out there. And that is a very um, wonderful gift from people because so much, so many of us do live with these layers. I lived with layers yeah. for 20 years of my life before I said, wow, I'm, I'm not, I'm not healthy because I'm not being me. And I see a woman who's just Jody. This is Jody. And she, <laughs> she literally is the girl who was, who always knew that she'd sit in the middle of the pasture with the cows. That's who you are. <laughs> I am. Yeah. Um, please, when um, if you can, any URLs that you can send to us of places that people can donate to, okay. um, to help this environment stay the way it is so that it will be there for us to tread gently upon in the future. I would love to try to encourage anybody who has the means to support this amazing group of countries and preserves and, and the individuals who've dedicated themselves. I mean, to, to be a guide and a ranger in these places is to put your life on the line with these poachers because they don't care about the, the right. ranger. They're, you know, they're, they're out there to make money in a certain way. And, um, and we should try to support them the best we can. I agree. Well, let me, uh, if I could just uh, do a promotion here. Um, our website is wildrainbowsafaris.com. Yep. On, we have a giving page that has the top organizations that we, and I need to put another one on there, and I'm going to send you the link to this other one, which is a school in Uganda that we've supported and helped them build. Some, um, it's a school in an orphanage that we've contributed to the production of several buildings. But on our website, there's a giving page, and there are organizations that we support the most, and we also try to visit. Not all of them are visitable because, like, there's Wild Aid, it is based here in the United States, but they do um, large scale campaigns and work with governments to change their policies, in particular directly 
with uh, China right now to help them with um, their wildlife trade um, there. Yeah. So that's a whole other conversation. But, you know, the, uh, more often than not, it's just education, educating the poachers. And, you know, just quickly, I'll say there's two different types of poaching, roughly. There's poaching for the pot. And those are individuals who have no other means for meat. They need to feed themselves. So they'll go out, but they'll go into areas where it's not technically allowed to poach. That's education right there and making sure that these people have the needs, the, the things they need to have their needs met. There's so many needs, but you know what I'm saying. Then there's poaching for sale, which is not okay, like ivory, rhino horn, pangolin, pangolin scales, any kind of bush yep. meat, not okay. Um, and, and we, again, need to work on education and providing a lifestyle to where these people are not driven to poaching for right. sale. Yeah. So, yes, I'll send you some links. Great idea. Good. Want to support you as best we can. So I'm going to wrap this up by just letting you know, um, you know, I, I, like I said, I, I've always felt from the moment I first spoke to you that I, somehow I was connected to you. Um, and uh, It's mutual. Uh, we're going to be doing these bed and breakfast um, interviews with owners, entrepreneurs who own these bed and breakfast. They're, they, they put their heart and soul into their establishments the way that you put it into what you do. And yeah. funny enough, the second person who contacted me is right there in Asheville. <laughs> Diane, Diane and Dan Rogers own the Pinecrest Bed and Breakfast. And uh, I just, when I, when I was talking to Diane the other day in her, in her kitchen, and I just kind of felt this symbiosis with her as well is that she just, you know, in Asheville, she's not a, a North Carolinian. Um, she's found her way there through uh, a series of events in her life. But the way she talks about the neighborhood she lives in and this home that she's taken with her husband under her wing and the way that she cares for her employees and for her guests, it's, it's you know, I do see these connections between all of us in that. We're, we're seekers. Um, we are people who can be at home in a place um, because we see that it's not just about us, that we're just in context with this. And I just want to thank you. I want to thank you for being the human being that you are. I've listened to some of your guests tell me stories, and it's certain that it's not just my experience. Everybody I've talked to who knows you has said the same thing. She was meant to do this, and she lived it so well. So. With all the, the respect and and, thank, and gratitude, thank you so much, Jody Cole. Rich, you're so sweet. You've been so good to me over the years. Thank you so very much. I appreciate you this. Yeah. You've been phenomenal. So with that, we're going to sign off and we're going to try to support um, some of Jody's causes if you can during this crazy time. Or you know what? If, it, if the support comes after it's over and you feel a little more financially secure, just if you've made a connection with Jody and with Africa today, um, put a piece of your heart and a piece of your bank account. Okay. Thank Thanks you so much. Being here. Be sure to check out travelunitesus.com for all the latest from the Travel Unites Us community.